So much of life is about words. We see this beautiful sunset over Lake Michigan. And an effective writer can paint that scene with descriptive words. It's as if we were there to see it. Why? Because words have meaning. Much of life is about words. But for words to make sense, they need a context. You know, if I say a phrase and you cut it off or you stop thinking, it could, I could land in some big trouble. You know, so I say, I beat my wife, and that's all. You heard that. you closing the door. You're thinking, oh, man, can you believe this? You didn't let me finish my sentence. You just ran out of it. So here's a little bit more. I beat my wife up almost every morning, and you're going, what? That, that could be literal. It could be figurative. Tone of voice could make a difference. You need the context. We were talking about making coffee in the morning. And I say, well, yeah, I usually beat my wife up every morning because I set my alarm clock earlier than she does, and I make the coffee. So that's a whole different circle of understanding than the first phrase. For words to make sense, you need context. My Webster's New World Dictionary is not very new. 1962 edition, and it defines context this way. The parts of a sentence, paragraph, discourse, etc., that occur just before and after a specified word or passage and determine its exact meaning. I could ask a few questions. Do words have meaning? Yes, they do. By those words, can you determine that what the speaker or the author intended? And we should be able to do that. And most of the time, yes. I mean, why write, why speak, why, why read if you can't? But they all need context. Our faith is very important to us. God's word is very important to us. If they weren't, we wouldn't be here this morning. But more and more, our faith, God's word is under attack, being undermined at all the time. Our society has been labeled post-Christian. Well, it's, it's never been Christian. But it certainly seems to be spinning further and further and away from the truth of God's Word. This morning, as we begin to study John's first letter, I want to share a little insights from three authors, uh, evangelical scholars, Daryl Bach, Daniel Wallace, both profs at Dallas Theological Seminary, second best school out there. Uh, first, of course, Trinity, Divinity School. But Luke and I will agree to that. They make the case in uh, their book called Dethroning Jesus, Exposing Popular Culture's Quest to Unseat the Biblical Christ. They make the case in their book that uh, we can know who Jesus is. In their first chapter, the claim they deal with is the original New Testament has been corrupted by copyists so badly it can't be recovered. And liberal scholars who teach, who preach, who write 
tell us that we cannot know what the writer's intentions were. There's no objective truth. Bach and Wallace deal with that because they speak about the reality and the the reliability, rather, of the New Testament manuscripts. Dr. D.A. Carson, who's going to be here uh, next month, you need to hear him, Monday night, whatever it is, the 11th, uh, 7 o'clock. One of his books, it's it's a heavy book. Heavy, heavy. um, But it's called The Gagging of God. Christianity Confronts Pluralism. And Dr. Carson, in that book, is writing about hermeneutics, which is the the study of interpretation. And he deals with four errors, Carson says, or four wrong views. I'm going to surmise them in my, my words. He deals with them. The first wrong view. In our society today, in biblical studies... It, can be the, it, can, it can't be the aim of hermeneutics to discover the objective truth as to what the text actually says. He fights on that one. He deals with that. But that's the error. Second wrong view. Meaning is in the hands of the interpreter, not in the pen of the writer. That's out there. Third wrong view. There are many meanings to a given text as there are interpreters of the text. Now, that's wrong. That's what he's fighting. And the fourth one, no, one, no one's meaning can ever be thought to be superior to any other meaning, for there is no objective basis on which to evaluate them. No, that's wrong. And Carson, Dr. Carson deals with those issues. The battle for the truth, for knowing the truth, it's around us and through our society. In the battles we're facing, you know, we could ask questions such as, Is the Bible true? Is it accurate? Jesus can't really be God, can he? Aren't there many ways to God? I listed in your outline, and there's a sheet and a half of titles and authors of books out at the Welcome Center. Please pick a sheet up. But I put a few of them in your outline as to uh, who are writing on the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. You need to read some of them. In this battle, as we see in 1 John, the battles took place in the early church, the end of the first century, and they haven't stopped. Christianity exists only because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who died, paid the price of our sin, and rose again, and those who trust in him can have eternal life. Christianity began in Judaism. That's the context. Jesus was a Jew, but he was also the Messiah Redeemer who is coming to provide salvation for all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That message has indeed spread across this globe. How else can you explain the the existence of the church today, I think that is one of the strongest arguments we as evangelicals could make. Jesus said to his disciples before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Christianity began in Jewish culture 
Jewish context, but it's for all cultures. The Apostle John wrote similar words. We know them, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, the world, you believe you'll be saved. I love the diagram in the 1984 edition of the NIV Study Bible. And it shows how the gospel went out from starting in Israel in 35 AD and eventually to Europe in 25 years. That is amazing. You think about that. How can the secular world explain that? If you want to read a great book, not a hard read, that's why I like it so much. Uh, the Rise of Christianity by Rodney Starks. It is excellent on the first three centuries of Christianity. What happened in the church between 35 and 90 AD? Well, it grew, and it developed, and it expanded, and it matured. But it had problems. Who doesn't? Not long before Paul goes to Jerusalem to be arrested... When there, you remember, he appeals to Caesar, and then he's sent to Rome. So not long before 60 AD, what, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ? Paul met with the Ephesian elders in the port city of Miletus on the west coast of Turkey. And Paul warns those elders of what he thinks is going to happen. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort, get it? Distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. In your outline, again, I put a number of references there about the false teachers in general. Now, the Apostle John is the last living apostle. They're all gone, except for this old preacher, pastor, sent one from Christ, the Apostle John as the gospel has spread out to the ends of civilization. It makes sense that untrained leaders who led and taught brought in their former ideas into what they were teaching. That's why we've got to teach how to teach, how to go to the Word. That is exactly what Pastor Corey is doing now in Africa with Pathways Bible Training. It's taking... African pastors, well, take a look. Hey, Chapel, I'm here in Lusaka, Zambia. It's been an incredible week so far with Pathways Bible Training, and we've been working our way through the book of Habakkuk. And I have here with me Pastor Teddy Kamfwa, who's just a dear brother, and it has been an awesome time learning together. So, Teddy, uh, we've been through Pathways now for about four years. So what has Pathways meant to you? How has it impacted you as a pastor right here in Lusaka? Well, my life has been changed. Like you can see, I know how to preach. I know how to share the gospel. I know how to put my finger in the text. I know how to go into a book and read the word of God and uh, preach the word and not my ideas. That has been a tremendous uh, help to me as a person and as a pastor. And knowing that what I'm teaching my people they are learning from the Word of God. They can see it from the text. That's where the power's at, right? In the exactly. Word. Exactly. And that's what we're doing. Awesome. Where did he get this from? His own mind as he was studying the Word. But now he's learned to put his finger on the text, 
to study and explain the word of God in his teaching. Does that make sense? That's, that's what we've got to be doing, and that was the problem at the end of the first century. Same issue. Apparently, as John writes, right, there have been some forceful teachers who have been within the church, and now they've left the church, and then they're leaving. They altered the truth of God's word, no longer holding to the true gospel, that apostolic truth that had been handed down. Just as Paul warned the elders in Ephesus, what could happen? As John writes, it did happen. False teachers were seeking to call believers to leave the apostolic truth to a mixture of Christianity and non-Christianity in thought, just like today. It's clear from John's letter that a division had developed. You can read from what is projected, and it's also in your outline, the list of false teachings as seen within John's letter, given by one commentary. So they were denying those truths. As you read through 1 John, and please do that a few times this week, you're going to see some very strong words referring to these false teachers like, Antichrists and deceivers and false prophets. And these false teachers were both erring in their theology and in their ethics. To put it into one term, they were denying the incarnation that God became man. That teaching, there was a teaching called docetism. And that Greek word means to seem. So it appeared, it seemed that, that, that Christ was a man. He wasn't really a man, but it seemed that way. He was disguised as a man. On the other hand, the others taught that, that Jesus was human man and that the Spirit of God came upon him at his baptism and was with him for three years and then left him when Jesus died on the cross. There was a second heresy group called the Gnostics. That's a Greek word that means the knowing ones, and knowledge was everything. Knowledge released you from the captivity of your own body and thoughts, and these beliefs existed at the end of the first century, got more formulated into the second century, and John seems to be dealing with them. It's very possible that these Gnostics, let me review a little bit of what they believed, they taught that matter was evil. And therefore, they couldn't hold to the incarnation because God could not take on a evil flesh body, the physical. That would, he just couldn't do that. The Gnostics, though, didn't deny that the Christ had a body. Right? Now, that was the op opposite of the docetists. What the, the Gnostics denied was that the Christ could be personally identified in body. They had a split between the two. You have a spiritual component and you have a physical component. Their doctrine, here's where ethics came in. You, you, it's, oh, you, see, you can sin because it's not your spirit that is sinning. Christ wouldn't. The spirit of Christ doesn't sin, but your flesh sins. So if your flesh sins, it's okay and sin because it's not your spirit. That's where they were ethically going. These knowing ones had no compassion for those who didn't agree with them. John is writing to refute these false teachers, but he's doing so much more in this letter. John is writing to reassure the believer of the truth. 
And we need that today. We need that today. This is the truth. It's the truth of who Jesus is. And, and we believers, we've got to know that. From John's purpose in writing this letter, he wants believers, the believing community, to know that we have this absolute truth. And we can understand what that truth is declaring. I want you to look at verses of assurance that John gives us in his letter, at the end of his, gospel, his epistle. Right? We have this assurance in chapter, 11, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. This assurance is a certainty. First, about Jesus Christ, that he is the true Son of God in flesh. And then secondly, that we can have that certainty about eternal life. If we place our faith in him as the payment for our sin, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, that's throughout John's letter, we know we have eternal life. Finally, take your Bibles, turn to our text. You've been there once already. Let's turn again, 1 John chapter 1. And we look at this preface, this introduction, uh, prologue to his letter. This morning we need to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, in human flesh. And what is declared in Scripture is true and genuine. His message, the message of Scripture, is reliable. It's understandable when we read it. The words are given in context, and we can believe what it declares. Do we sometimes struggle with that? Sure we do. Our old nature is in there and go, ah, Lord, I don't know, and I have doubts. But we come back to that assurance that Jesus has given us his truth and who he is. God has presented that and given it to us in his word, and we have the Holy Spirit within us. As John ends this prologue, when we accept this truth of, of what is written, we will have peace and joy and fellowship. So what is... John declaring. Got your outline. First point, we see the source of the proclamation. Point A, and it is a message. It's a message. John writes very one very long, entangled sentence. This is all one sentence. And, uh, you know, when we write a sentence, there's form in our sentences, a word order that we follow. And we start with, in our English, we start with a subject. And that, look at the end of verse 1. And John gives us the subject. And it's the word we. We. Got your text? You're looking at this? And there's a lot of we's in this text. And then, and then we have the predicate, right? And that follows. And there's three parts to the predicate. We have a verb. And in our text, that verb, the main verb, the controlling verb, is in verse 3. It's proclaim. Now, the NIV does a great job and gives us good English, bad Greek. And, and, and John puts the verb way at the end. Well, the NIV puts it where we would in a normal English conversation. That's why I love the NIV. And what follows? You with me here? You grammar, are you all grammar experts? Well, I'm afraid you're not, so I'm telling you to wake up. This is English class 101. All right, you with me? All highs here, okay. All right, let's look. We have, right? Now we've got the direct object in the sentence, and the direct object is the word of life, right? How do you find the direct object? Because you ask the question of the verb. Well, what do we proclaim? The word of life. That's not real complicated. We also have an indirect object, and it is the word you. 
So we have a simple sentence. We proclaim the word of life to you. That's what John's simple sentence is. Now he gets a lot of other things crammed into that simple sentence. He's got so many dependent clauses floating around in there. The object of his proclamation is this message. And John describes this message at the beginning of the statement. Look at it. Verse 1, it's the object of the sentence, and the object is very important to John. It is seen in the fact that he puts it at the beginning. That was a tell as well, at the beginning of the sentence, that which is most important. The object consists of a series of parallel relative clauses. We see that with the word which, which, which. And it describes the object of John's sentence. The way John writes, the description at this point, he's describing a thing. Yes, it's a thing. That which. And it's the word of life. It's a thing. It's an object. And in a sense, it's a message. So we would say well, it's, it's the gospel. It's the good news. But it is more than words. It's more than a message, something spoken and something written down. Secondly, point B, it is a description of a person. This is a person. The object is a person. John is focusing not on a thing, but this person. A person was from the beginning. A person is heard and seen and looked at and touched. It's pretty hard to touch a message. Can you, catch any, can you touch any of the words I'm speaking? Well, of course you can't. So if you're going to touch something, it has to be substantial, and that is Jesus Christ. We see where it's described, point C. It is the word of life. Let's examine the five clauses relating to that. First, that which was from the beginning. That's how he describes the word of life. It sounds just like his gospel. How did John begin his gospel? At the beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made that were. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In John's gospel account, we see that the word existed prior to creation. You see that through him, all things were made. That's in John's gospel. He's talking about the eternal word, eternity. He comes to his letter, and now John isn't talking about eternity past. He's starting at the beginning, but the word is there at this beginning, and he goes forward. Second phrase, 1 John, point two. He talks about which we have heard. And, and, and this word of life has been heard. This life has a voice, a human voice, and it takes human ears to hear this voice. The next phrase, and this one, both of these words are in what is called the perfect tense. And that perfect tense is something that happened in the past but continues into the present, so it impacts us today. John is writing, that which we heard is still being heard today. That's, what, that's the verb he's using. 1,900 years later. But hearing is not enough. So the point three, the next phrase, that which we have seen with our eyes. This talks about the active, active, active physical act of, of seeing. Indeed, seeing is a mental activity. We know that. We see. It, it computes what I'm looking at. We think about it. We know what we're looking at. So there's understanding. This also is in the perfect tense. So he's saying that which we have looked at in the past is still seen today. We can, we can see him impacting us. The fourth phrase, that which we looked at. John chooses to use a second verb for seeing. And this verb 
translates, transliterates from Greek into English the letters theater. And it means to look with attention. And this one he puts in past tense. So the other two were in the past, coming into the present, still impacting it. This one he says, we looked at him. And we see how he looked at him. The fifth phrase, we touched him. The word of life is something that can be touched. He's tangible. It's not just an idea, not just a spirit, not just a message or words. John is saying at a point in time, at a point in time, we touched him, we, 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 we handled him, we examined him closely with attention. I agree with scholars who say that this Jesus point, Jesus is, that John is t- referring to the, the resurrection of the Son of God, Luke chapter 24. Luke uses this very same Greek word describing Jesus and his resurrection, appearing to the disciples. When Jesus said, touch, and, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. In John 20, 27, though a different word, John tells us what Jesus said to doubting Thomas. Touch me. He's substantial. It's him. I'm not a ghost. Same idea. Well, now John concludes these five descriptive statements with the words concerning the word of life. We can go back to John's gospel and we see what he said about the word. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John's whole emphasis in this opening prologue of his gospel is on the word. Verse 4, in the word was life. John in his letter is a little different. He uses a definite article. In the word was the life. He is the life. He's not any life, but he's this particular life, this word. God is revealed in this particular one, only one. Do we get that? It's not what some liberal theologian says that you can't understand, that we can understand that. One person, God in flesh. Got some application. Our pluralistic society, liberal theologians. If John is right, they are wrong. If they're right, John is wrong. I'm standing with John. I know for certain, and I could list off liberal theologians, Rudolf Boltmann dead, Bart Ehrman, professor of New Testament at North Carolina. Why would he, I don't understand why he's the chair of that, why would he even care? That's a different story. Elaine Pagels, many others. They've never heard, nor seen, nor studied, nor touched this Jesus. But John did, and Peter did, and James, and Barth, the rest of them. I'm as good as somebody else I know. Physical. I'm going to go with the person who says, I touched him, I saw him, I ate with him, I saw the empty tomb, I went and saw the risen Jesus. That's who I'm standing with, not someone who thinks, well, I'm not sure that's what the text means. Next week we will look at the historicity of Jesus Christ, the historicity of those who wrote of him. In this first application, I just want to see so clearly that our faith is all about the real person, Jesus Christ. 
It is a message. He is a message. He is the gospel. But he's more than that. He is God in flesh. And if Jesus Christ is not literally the Son of God, if he literally has not been born of the Virgin Mary so that God could come into Mary and produce this God-man in one person, if he didn't literally rise from the dead, which too many liberal theologians do not hold to, then my mind says, what are these theologians, why are they even worried in teaching about Jesus? I can't get my head around that one. Why do they care about Jesus? Why is Bart Ehrman, professor of New Testament in North Carolina University, if he doesn't believe this is what it says? I don't get that. I am not a pastor to help people be better people. Why would we read the Bible if we cannot understand in the plain teaching what it says? Why would we do that? I would not waste my time reading this novel. If those theologians are correct, the liberal ones of our day, then the following 20th century and 21st century scholars, apologists, New Testament, Old Testament scholars, then they're wrong. They're all wrong. They're all liars and deceivers. Because only one group can be true and right. They can't all be right. These people live and speak the truth. Again, I'm not a pastor to help people feel good about Jesus and to live a good life like Jesus. Try and follow his example because he was human, so he was fallen. He wasn't perfect, of course. No one's perfect. I am here to see people enter the kingdom of God for the glory of God. I am here to see that the church of Jesus Christ stays on mission, right? We all better do that. And that we preach the truth of the scripture. And we disciple others so to reach more for the sake of Christ. Because eternity, one's eternity hinges on what one does with Jesus Christ. The reality of Christianity is, is focused in the person of Jesus Christ, who he said he was. And John declares that he is the word of life. And if you have life, you have Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have life. The truth of who Jesus is comes to a decision we all have to make. Who will we believe? What will we believe? And if you and I believe that this is the declared truth of God's word, then we better read it and study it and more than that, live it. This is in bounds, that's out of bounds. This is right, that's not right. I need to have my life in an organized pattern following what the word of God teaches. Listen, Christianity is not about the church, a building, communion, baptisms, teaching, helping. That's not what the church, that's not, about, that's not what Christianity is about. All of those can be good, isolated things, but that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about one thing. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, died on that cross, paid the price of our sin, so that by faith in him, we have his gift of eternal life. Period. And if Jesus is real, my faith is real, and so is yours. 
And I have to live my life, life seeking in the power of the Holy Spirit to conform to the teaching of his word. I put in your application a bunch of thought questions. I want you to read those, think through those. If you forgot to pick up an outline, pick it up on your way out. Be a good student. It would be fun to say, okay, everyone has your outline. Hold it up. I'm not going to do that. I want you to bow in prayer. It's about for prayer. If you're sitting here and you've got that outline, I want you to talk to the Lord about those thought questions. If you don't have an outline, I just want you to talk to the Lord about how you're walking with Christ and his word. What do you need to do? What do you need to change? I want you to think and I want you to pray about your walk with Christ. Will you do that right now silently? There may be some here this morning as we continue in prayer or watching online, you would say you've not stepped into that personal faith in Jesus Christ. And you need to come to that point right now and say, I need Jesus as my Savior. Maybe you're ready to take that step. And if you are, silently you can pray with me. You can say, Jesus, I understand you are God in flesh. And you came to earth at a point in time to be the Savior. You died to pay price, the price for my sin. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Cleanse me. I receive you as my Savior and Lord right now. If that's your decision, let me know it. Let any of our staff know it. If you're watching online, let us know. Amen. A couple more thoughts as we close and then we sing. The society in which we live is very pluralistic. Many ideas are floated out there. People get offended if you say that this is the right way. We live in a day when thoughts are supposed to be just one's thoughts as valid as anyone else's and that there's no absolute truth. It's in this day that you and me all the more as committed followers of Jesus Christ had to be students of the word of God. We need to have that assurance that this is the truth. You do your study. You read those good writers out there who put this together, those scholars who write. You know what I, excites me the most about... No, nah, it's not true. An exciting thing about my faith is I love the fact that so many evangelical scholars and theologians who write and speak and teach believe exactly what I do. They hold to the inerrancy of the original writings in Scripture, just like I do, you do, me. And you know what? A lot of them studied at seminary in Harvard and Princeton and Yale. But they came out and had their life centered on Jesus Christ. Their credentials are just as good as you can name whoever. And they hold to the faith. Isn't that awesome? We better hold to the faith and live out the truth of God's word. Be convinced this is the truth. So we're going to sing. Let's stand. We're going to sing as we close. We're going to sing about standing on that rock of Christ. We will not fall as we stand on him. Let's sing. This is Pastor Corey Kugel, and thank you so much for listening today. 
Make sure you also hit subscribe and then visit our website, which is yourplacetobelong.com. There you can keep up with all that's happening at the chapel. Our building is located at 4250 Washington Avenue in St. Joseph, Michigan. We hope you'll visit us on a Sunday morning for one of our worship services at 9 or 1035, either in person or online. Thanks again for listening.